0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for donate. Hey, for the wild community, Ayana here. I want to share a few community updates. First, we're looking for land partnerships for our biodiversity enhancement test plots as part of the 1 million redwoods project. We're also looking for interns for the 1 Million Redwoods project and expanding our research team. So if you have experience as an ecologist or mycologist, get a hold of us at engage@forthewild.world. We're also in need of some camera support for our reciprocity retreat, which is happening over the weekend of July 20th, about an hour outside of Portland in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. So if you have skills and would like to volunteer, again, email us at at engageforthewild.world. Next thing is if you're a musician and you would like your music showcased on the podcast, go to our website and upload your music. And lastly, tomorrow we are launching a crowdfunding campaign for the podcast podcast, on drip which is kickstarter's version of patreon we're really honored to be a part of their beta group so keep checking out our social media and our newsletter to learn more about how you can get involved and support for the wild podcast through this network all right thank you so much So I just returned home to my beloved Cougar Mountain from Detroit, Michigan, where I was at the Allied Media Conference, attending workshops and also hosting a panel on objectivity, intimacy, and integrity in journalism and storytelling. And I was honestly just blown away by my experience there. And I had the honor of taking a few workshops with Adrienne Marie Brown. So the whole team thought that it would be a good idea to rebroadcast her interview from March 18th, 2018, as it's also a team favorite. So if you haven't heard the podcast already, you're in for a real treat. And if you have, I'm sure you're going to get even more out of it this time around. Now on to the show.
1: (laughs) The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort of your own Always alone Wishing for something the world is denying Out in the wilderness somebody's crying Wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despair, someone to lean on, and someone to trust who needs your assistance.
0: Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne is the author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and co-editor of Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements. Her upcoming book is Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, she facilitates social justice and Black liberation through the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. It is on the teaching body of Black organizing for leadership and dignity and generative somatics. She and her sister co-host How to Survive the End of the World podcast, and she writes the Pleasure Dome column for Bitch Magazine. Hello, Adrian. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello, Ayana.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh. Well, I'm so excited to welcome you to For the Wild Podcast today. And I have to say that shortly after this interview was scheduled, we realized that many of us on the For the Wild team were already reading Emergent Strategy. And so on behalf oh. of yeah.
1: <laughs> So on behalf of
0: all of us, your work is truly a gift to this time.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Tell everyone I said hi. (laughs) I will. And
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay, well, I'd love to begin by talking about the concept of emergence itself. Okay. And I'll just read the definition you share in Emergence Strategy from Nick Obolensky of Complex Mm -hmm. Adaptive Leadership, quote, Emergence is the way complex systems and pattern arise out of a multiplicity of relatively simple interactions, end quote. And for me, tapping into emergence is really enlivening. And once I'd done so, I began to see it everywhere. And I just love how it describes patterns, both biological and social, and scales up from molecules self-organizing into cells all the way to the Earth's climate or our societal structures. And it seems that awakening into emergence is essentially awakening to our ability as individuals and earthly communities to shape the direction of change through small actions. So I want to open this conversation by asking you to speak about emergence in any way you feel called to in this moment.
1: I first came across the ideas of emergence without realizing that's what I was coming across, but first seeing it as like, oh, this is a way that change can happen Um, In the writings of Octavia Butler, who was a Black science fiction writer who wrote 12 novels and a collection of short stories, and her protagonists basically um, had these very different ways of leading than what I had been taught to do or taught to look for or pay attention to. They were rarely bombastic, charming, linear, top-down leaders. They were much more often highly adaptive, highly interconnected and interdependent to the point of symbiosis. Leaders who were focused on relationship and focused on integrity inside of relationship and focused on constantly creating more possibilities. So I got tuned into this and started paying attention to it and, and getting excited because I I was feeling the limitations of the kind of organizing that I was being invited into and, and trained into. And, I, you know, it was really good stuff. And I could feel like, This is really good stuff if we just want to stop something bad from happening, but I'm not sure that this will ever get us to a place where we can turn towards what it is we really long for and start to generate it and practice it in our lives. And so something about that, understanding how ecosystems work and how the rest of our natural world works, it's like, oh, if we make the right small moves and lots of us make these right small moves and and get involved in these smaller practices, we actually can shift the, the future. And we're not going to be able to actually get to a large scale critical mass unless we begin with small actions. Before we hopped on the call, I, I was talking with um, uh, my tax representative. And I want to share this because it feels relative. Um, you know, for years, I was a war tax resistor. Like, for maybe 12 years of my life. And it really felt to me like the kind of small action I'm talking about. Like if I resist this, if I refuse to participate in anything that will lead to war, then that'll change the world, right? And it makes a fine point for me between what is individual action versus what are small communal actions. And I feel like Emergence really focuses on the small communal actions. Like it's not just what can I as an individual do, although you do look at yourself as the front line for change. But because I was acting very individually in my war tax resistance, now, years later, the IRS has caught up with me and I don't have community necessarily around me to be like, oh, we've got you, we'll protect you, here's what we're gonna do. Um, And so I'm like, oh, if I was to do this strategy again, I would do it very differently. Having learned what I've learned about emergence in that time, it's like, what are the ways that communities of people can come together And start small divestment processes that actually help to liberate resources from governments that are making decisions we don't agree with. And then how do we build that? Because ideally we would be in a place like in this political moment where we could say we're not going to pay into a system that is being led by someone we deeply disagree with who every single day is making decisions that dishonor our humanity, right? We're not at that place yet um, in terms of having been practicing at a small scale in order to scale it up. So a big part of emergence also that I'll say is the idea of fractals, that fractals exist all throughout the natural world. And it's the idea that there's systems that operate from the smallest scale to the largest scale. And we have to pay attention to what's happening at the smallest scale because that's what gets replicated and replicated all the way up to the largest scale. I think for social justice movements, we have to always be paying attention to what we're practicing at the smallest scale, not just what we tell other people to practice or think should be practiced or in some amazing future we will practice, but like what are we practicing every single day and how is that generating futures that align or don't align with what we actually say we want.
0: How did you land upon juxtaposing emergence with strategy?
1: I think it was in a way like a blend with my community that I had been working as a facilitator and I'd also had some jobs within movement. So I was, um, for a while, the executive director of a group called the Ruckus Society and had done other work before that and then got to be co-director there. And then I've been on different boards. And so I was just in these different spaces and alliances, um, both my own organizational spaces, and then larger national and international alliances of work. And the thing I kept hearing all the time was strategy, strategy, strategy. This person is strategic. This group is strategic. And I started to really wonder what people meant by that. I grew up in a military household. I had grown up around this terminology also, like what is strategic. And You know, when I looked it up just out of curiosity, it was like it just means a plan of action towards a goal. I had this like kind of aha moment of like, oh, we're using this word as if it means something different or more than it means. If we actually want to speak about people being strategic and work that's strategic in ways that actually align with what we want, then we should articulate what we mean by strategic. So then I thought, why don't we call this emergent strategy? Strategies that Focus on the relational, and that focus on small scale. I'm still learning what all is possible with emergent strategy. Honestly, um, you know, when I when I approached the book, I was really thinking as strategies for facilitation, strategies for bringing people together, for holding and creating space with each other, for guiding ourselves um, in organizational processes and through organizational processes that are liberatory. So I was like, okay, these are plans of actions that will get us towards a goal of liberation in ways that align with the cooperative aspects of the natural world. And one of the things I always try to emphasize is the natural world will support any worldview. You know, there's also the top-down alpha creatures in nature, right? I don't want to misrepresent nature or take anything away from the beautiful complexity of nature and be like, everyone's just hunky-dory ants getting along. That's totally not what's happening. (laughs) There's prey, there's predators, there's natural disasters, there's human disasters that uh, creatures cannot respond to, like all of that's happening. But then inside of that, there is this collaborative thrust of the universe, this complexity of the universe that does seem to flow with those who are able to adapt and those who then survive the longest. And so I'm really wanting to pay attention and bring all of our attention to that place and to say, okay, what are the strategies that allow for longevity? And it does feel like collaboration is such a huge part of them and getting a right relationship with change is a huge part of them. And so I was also tired of being with groups who wanted to generate strategic plans that were like, Here's a five-year plan, and we've we're looking at everything. But those plans they weren't actually focused on what do we care about and what are we trying to move. A lot of times they were really focused on like what will we do and we're going to do it this way. And they they often were not flexible, and they often were not um, familiar to the entire organization. Right? It was like whoever was there when they worked on the plan maybe knew it, and everyone else was just going about business as usual. So I also wanted to kind of interrogate uh, what we mean by a strategic plan and how do we create plans? Because it's not like you should never plan, but how do we create plans that enhance our capacity to be present with each other and get in right relationship with change and with all the people around us?
0: One of the pieces of emergent strategy that's really showing up in my life right now and in For the Wild as a growing organization Mm. is the emphasis on critical connection over critical mass. And I love how you say mm-hmm. our movements should be, a quote, an inch wide and a mile deep instead of a mile wide and an inch deep. And I'd really like if you could speak about this and how mm-hmm. the strengthening and scaling up of our movements calls for showing up with vulnerability and a willingness to deepen our relationships with one another.
1: I heard that for the first time. From an organizer here in Detroit, Lottie Spady, who has done a bunch of stuff with environmental justice, food justice, land. She also makes a a mean whipped shea butter. Um, And she had been doing this work called In Our Own Backyards for a long time and had been doing all this media work. And So she was the first person I heard it from. I'm not sure she said it first, but that's where I heard it. I was really blown away by that idea and how that represented so much of what I saw happening in Detroit in terms of how people built movement, that it was like, it's not about trying to get the broadest collection of people together necessarily, because a lot of times that super broad collection is a very shallow connection that does not hold up under pressure. And instead, what does it mean to come together and get into relationships that you're in over the period of your lifetime? Basically, you're kind of expecting like, oh, here we are. We're going to create change together. We're going to grow together. Things are going to be different (laughs) in a little while. And we're going to shape that difference together rather than being super focused on building institutions that are just massive. How do we build relationships that are flexible and relationships that are that can sustain pressure? And I think about this a lot. It's like, how do you know if something can sustain pressure until it gets tested? So some of the ways you test relationships are knowing that a relationship can really handle some conflict and that all the people in the relationship, uh, in the organizational relationship or collective relationship that people are like, oh, I can actually bring myself um, even when I'm not at my best. I can ask for help. I can give help. I can be in power sometimes, in more power or less power sometimes. I don't have to be everyone's equal all the time when they're not. And I also don't have to just continuously be in a paradigm where someone, one person holds power who doesn't necessarily earn it or deserve it, that we can really be in honest conversations around power and around conflict and around tension. So those were some of the things that excited me and that I was seeing witnessed when I moved here and then started noticing as I looked around, as I was facilitating, as I was going into different spaces, it started to be a measure of like, oh, how do these folks recover from change or from difference or from conflict? Like, how do they recover? How do they come back to each other? And what does it mean to hold a standard that we come back stronger and stronger and stronger rather than we come back more and more compromised? We have a strange society, Ayana, right? Like we we live in a society where we are conflict avoidant, but pro-war, right? I've been thinking about this a lot lately that it's like, fight, fight, fight. Everyone needs a gun. Everyone needs a weapon, but no one actually learns like, well, how do you navigate conflict really well? And so that shows up even in our social justice work where we're like, we're trying to change the world, (laughs) but it's really challenging to actually practice transformative justice or restorative justice or anything that's not just straight up punitive power over ways of being with each other. So all of this stuff is kind of what's swimming in the water of what it takes to build those uh, mild deep relationships and to stay in them for the long haul. You know, we treat each other as if there's like an endless amount of people who are down for social justice work and we can just like toss anyone out the boat because they, you know, mess up or say the wrong word or, you know, different kinds of things that we hold these standards for. We're like, well, psh, you're canceled. And I keep leaning into those moments and being like, hmm, how, what would it look like? <laughs> what would it look like to treat each other in a a little bit of a more precious way? Um, And even if we can't necessarily all work together, which I also don't think can happen, right? Like, I think there are definitely people who are not meant to work together. And I do think there are occasionally, but it's very rare, but I think occasionally there are people who it doesn't make sense for them to work with each other, um, or even to be in movement spaces. You know, I, I say this sometimes is that there's a lot of folks who are really hurting and traumatized and they need some healing before they can even do any movement work. Right. So I think making distinctions there, it's like, oh, do you need some help? Like, let's make sure you get that help. And then, oh, do you guys need conflict resolution and some space? Let's make sure you get that. But the last, last, last resort should be exiling someone from movement spaces um, or exiling each other from community spaces. We need more people, right? Like, That thing about critical connection matters more than critical mass. It doesn't mean that we don't also need critical mass to create change. It's just that that critical mass needs to be full of authentic relationships and on authentic sharing of vision. And that requires getting in and and doing the dirty work of moving through conflict together a lot of times.
0: Well, to stay on this topic, because it feels so relevant and so necessary to talk about this critical mass and critical connection and also the epidemic of horizontal hostility and vicious critique that seems so hard to shake from our movement circles. And when it comes down to it, like you said, there aren't that many of us doing this work. It feels to me that we need to be family and a family that can hold one another through difficulties, a family that can continue to embrace more and more people as it blossoms and expands but not necessarily that like you said everyone needs to work together in the same room in the same community but have some type of loving respect for one another and i'm wondering how you think we can be better at growing deeper relationships through conflict instead of abandoning and demonizing one another when interpersonal fissures arise
1: well, a couple of thoughts come up came up as you were sharing just now. You know, one is I feel some hesitancy around the frame of family, <laughs> right? Because on one side, I'm like, yes, from a very what I think of as indigenous wisdom and indigenous rightness worldview, um, that it's all my relations, that everything on this planet is related and connected to each other. In that sense, yes, family. But I think when we look at what's happened with the human family, so many human families have become kind of the primary point place for trauma, where trauma happens to us and where we learn to sublimate our longings and our desires and our truths um, for the sake of politeness or for navigating people's ignorance or, you know, different things that, that keep us caught up. So I think one thing is... We can use the language of family, but then I think we have to be really, really precise around what kind of family we mean. Um, You know, as a queer person, I love the language of chosen family. The idea that even those people who I was born um, and have blood relationships with, there's a certain element of choosing how deeply I'm going to be engaging with them. Um, I have some family now who are very conservative. And while I haven't, like, written them out of my life necessarily, I definitely have given myself permission to step back and take a break um, from from engaging with them during this period, right? I need to be able to sustain myself and sustain my hope through this work. It's really difficult to do that in the face of of people who know me and say they love me and still make choices that um, impact my livelihood, my well-being, my freedom, my safety. So you know, I just think all of that complicates the the framework of family and then, right, <laughs> the contradictions, and that's still the goal, or that still needs to be a place we're moving towards. So in terms of practices, the number one practice that I recommend to people and that I've, you know, I only recommend practices if I've been in them, right, myself, and the one that I've been in and that I recommend to people is really about honesty, growing or redeveloping our capacity to be honest with each other. I think if you have ever spent time around really young children, um, people who are like learning to speak and learning to communicate, learning to express what they want and don't want and their boundaries and their needs, there's so much honesty there um, that we get taken aback. We're like, oh my gosh, you know, that child just said, you know, you're fat, right? Like I've had children look at me and be like, you're fat. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of amazing though that you're just saying like what people are thinking when they look at me. Um, but maybe not saying. And and then being able to be in a right relationship with a child around that, right? It's like, yeah, I am fat. I feel great in my body, da-da-da-da, right? And actually go down that path together. But it's like we start from truth and we keep walking along the path of truth. As adults, we get trained away from that truth in all these different ways. A lot of it is in the name of kindness or politeness. We're like, don't make anyone uncomfortable. So don't tell someone if you don't like their food, Right. Um, just eat it, suffer through it, it's your grandma's pie, whatever it is, then all of a sudden you find yourself kind of down that river of having practiced being polite and putting the politeness and not hurting other people's feelings ahead of your own truth so many times that you might even lose track of what's true for you. You might even lose track of the fact that you could just say that, right? You could just say that. And there's even ways, compassionate, kind, honest ways to speak truth to people I experienced it as a pretty American thing, a U.S. thing, although the U.S. and Canada thing. (laughs) So there's this, you know, niceness that can get in the way of authenticity. And so I've been in a practice with several friends of let's be really authentic with each other. Let's be a thousand percent honest. And I'm going to go out of my way to be honest with you, particularly around things that might cause me shame or might cause me to shrink myself in some way or to feel, you know, like this is not me or I don't want to be associated with this. And each time I cross one of those lines and I'm I'm like, here's a thing I don't want to say that's true. (laughs) You know, Um, it blows my mind to see a, how that gets received. People respond pretty well to honesty. I think people are hungry for honesty. And I think that it's a learning curve, like learning how to be honest where it's like, I'm not just, Bouting out anything that comes to mind, I'm being honest in order to attend to my needs and in order to be whole in myself and understand what's happening with myself. So that's one of the first practices because at the root, so often conflict is about people did not saying what they really wanted or needed or what was really happening in a moment and letting something fester. And once something festers, it's so much worse than it was when it first happened. Most of the time, it's like, Three years ago, you said that you thought I was selfish and like that thing just lingers and it's powerful, right? Instead of in the moment being like, actually, I contest that. I don't think that that's true or I want to understand where you're coming from or any number of conversations you can have in real time. So that would be the first thing. What an incredible insight
0: that in so many ways we've been conditioned Mm -hmm. out of even knowing our own truth because we've been cut off from our intuition, and our instinct even
1: on that deep of a level. Yeah. And it's not accidental, right? It's capitalism. (laughs) You know, I always say that. It's like, there's no accident. Like if you cut people off from their own truth, then you can fill them with any desire. And if you can fill them with any desire, then you can fill them with a desire to work for you, pay into your system, um, participate in things that are oppressive to them. You can do a lot once you have, you know, sort of disconnected people from their truth. So, so much of the work is like, oh, how do I reconnect people to their truth to liberate them into choice and agency? There's so many more things that we have agency over that we don't remember or don't think that we have choice over, right? So, yeah.
0: about the intuition and instinct and it links to this chapter for me in your book called magic and spells i just want to say how greatly i appreciate the way you embody magic and spirit in your writing i just love how you sprinkle poetry Mm -hmm. and how you incorporate calling upon forces that live beyond the reductionist and socialized realms of our mind the spirit of the land Mm -hmm. Just the miraculousness of our own bodies and really valuing these other ways of knowing and the spiritual powers that we all harbor. It just feels like a watershed of guidance that our movements are yearning for.
1: I've been so surprised at how people are interacting with it. Like I have to just say, you know, because of all the things you just said, when I was working on it, I was like, no one is going to read this (laughs) book. You know, I, I, a small number, you know, I was like some friends uh, will read this book, but because it feels like such a personal awakening process around whatever you want to call that sense of connectedness, because I think people call it a lot of different things and, and assign a lot of different narratives and story to it. Um, but for me, I'm just like, Oh, I am a miraculous being. Like I can't recreate myself. That which animates me is mysterious to me and, Thus, it's precious to me. You know, it's like, oh, I can't figure it out and just mass produce it. Um, I think that we see a lot of people who spend their entire lives trying to figure that out. I think artificial intelligence in a lot of ways is that kind of thrust of like, how do we figure out what life actually is and can we make it? And it's like, we can do a lot of things, but this so far we have not figured out. And that humbles me so much that I'm like, I get to be alive Without understanding why, without understanding exactly where I'm going, I get to spend my whole life wondering about that and shaping that and being in a relationship with that. And I'm a Virgo. I spent the first part of my life like, I know everything, you know, I know, I know, I know. And then this part of my life so far has just been so much of like, I don't know. And that's the amazing part. I get to find out. I still get to learn. There's so much ahead of me. I'll never know all of it. So, yeah, it feels like the book is me being like, I don't know, (laughs) like, in so many ways. Um, And being like, I don't know, but I have noticed this or I have seen this. I really went away from doing something that was very, like, scientifically, like, grounded. Like, it's not like every single thing I say. And I'm like, and here is my proof of that. You know, it's like, if you're alive, you have also seen these things. So that's been very cool. People responding to it. Like, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and be like, yes, I also notice these things and feel these things and long for these things. And the book in some ways is just a permission book. Like it's a book that says, yeah, great. (laughs) You know, that's, that's true. You're not alone. I also feel that. And I've been getting that back from the world. of so many people being like, Elsa, Adrian, you're not alone. We also feel that. And that is a nourishment in and of itself.
0: When my mind entertains the more magical aspects of this work, I think about what you write on radical imagination and Afrofuturism. And I'd love if you could describe those both and why they are essential as we imagine
1: liberation together. One of the ideas that was sort of introduced to me by a thinker in Boston named Terry Marshall was this idea that we're actually in an imagination battle and that we're living inside of someone else's imagination for what this world would look like, how it would work, how power would work inside of it, how we would be in relationship to resources. And that this imagination battle has been happening a long time. There's other worldviews and other ways of approaching it. Some have been dominant at different points and now have been pushed down. So we're in this space and it's like, oh, if there's an imagination that created these conservative inhumane conditions, then we need to have a radical imagination that moves us through and out of them. We have to be able to see something beyond this moment, and something about seeing it gives us something to orient towards. And I also think an aspect of radical imagination is collective imagination, that it's not just going off and coming up with your own brilliant little idea and then pitching it to people, selling it to people. But rather, like, when you feel the seedling of an idea, turning to other people as, like, other seeds, as water, as sun, as air. Like, how can we nourish this kernel together and other kernels? And how can we create an ecosystem of ideas? So radical imagination falls there. And I was really lucky to get to work with Walida E. Marisha on the book Octavia's Brood, which came out before Emergent Strategy, Um, It's an anthology of social justice writers who basically created short stories to address some of these issues. She also, Walida, came up with this phrasing of visionary fiction, of like, how do we actually write fiction that decenters the white, straight, male narrative and recenters something that is much more global and realistic, right? It's like, what's the world we live in? who lives in it? (laughs) How do we center ourselves in our stories? Um, And how do we talk about how change really happens, which is bottom up, generally not top down, which is, you know, that grassroots structure. So in all of that, we're in conversation with Afrofuturism, which is in the most basic sense, this concept that black people will exist in the future, (laughs) right? There's a lot a lot of conversation and controversy and other folks who, you know, folks who choose to say Black speculative fiction, you know, there's a lot that can happen within like terminology and genre, but in the broadest sense of it, right, this idea of Black people in the future, it's simple and so radical. It's so radical when we look at like the world we live in now, where you can kill Black people with no punishment, no, um, not even punishment, but like no containment, like society doesn't contain the harm against black people, that black people are expected to, even though we're being shot on a regular basis and being brutalized on a regular basis, we're expected to walk as if we are normal and untraumatized and everything's fine. And we're expected not to resist. We're definitely expected never to take direct actions to say to people, this is not okay. Um, will you pay attention to this? And then, if we do that, we're considered again impolite, right? So this idea that we counter all that and say, you know, we're not—we're going to be impolite now. We're going to create disruptions now. We're going to make people pay attention now. We're going to stop the cycles now because we're going to fight for uh, Black people to exist in the future. So for me, Afro, that's where Afrofuture is exciting. When you give people a concept of themselves in the future, it gives us something that we want to act on behalf of right now, and I think that to me, is why Afrofuturism, Black speculative fiction, science fiction, visionary fiction are all really important tools for generating futures. And I don't know if you've read the Kumbahi River Collective, but this idea that they put in there, they forwarded intersectional feminism, and this idea that if you look at a society in which Black women are free, that everyone else would necessarily have to be free because of the intersecting conditions that Black women live in. Liberating Black people is not just for Black people. It's it's a statement on what is humanity up to, what are we capable of, where do we want to be heading, um, that we, we should be heading a direction where the least of us are in the safest place and are made to feel precious and made to feel like we can live abundant lives. Because if we can do it, then every other being on the planet can do it.
0: I'm just so struck
1: by this
0: thought that imagination has been colonized and how, when you're speaking about um, radical imagination and visionary fiction and Afrofuturism, reclaiming that imagination is liberating and necessary for, like you said, all species and
1: um, everything that that lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: It takes us down to this uh, place that is beyond so beyond reductionist thinking or Mm -hmm. how so many of us have been conditioned to believe how the world functions. Another thing that really has me wonderfully shaken is non-linearity and how I think it's important to talk about the non-linearity of our needs as individuals and communities and the non-linearity of what we consider progress or success It seems like, yes, we need clear visions and strong values, of course, but we may also need to be more accepting of the messiness of transformative processes and the oscillations of our movements. Mm. And this is something Mm -hmm. you so beautifully detail in Emergent Strategy.
1: There's a lot of really incredible experiments happening right now where people are making long-term commitments to learn together. So rather than the commitment being, like, we are going to build a massive institution, which, you know, what goes into that is, like, a huge amount of compromise and a huge amount of, like, um, contorting in order to find out what philanthropy will fund and then trying to make what you're trying to do fit into that. And, like, it's a whole game. So. There's a lot of folks who are like, we, we want to get off the wheel of that game. We want to figure out other ways to create change. And so what I see are a lot of people who are like, it's not that we're going to stop having organizations, but we're going to start building relationships with each other that are outside of those organizations, beyond those organizations. And in those relational spaces, we're going to make commitments to learn and experiment together. To And that experimentation approach right, is like, we understand that we don't know the answer yet because if we knew the answer, we would be free. So since we humble ourselves, we say we don't know the answer, but we've looked at the data and we have a hypothesis for what we think could actually change these conditions. And we're going to make, um, based on our hypothesis, we're going to do this experiment together. And when a group gets into that level of communication and commitment and humility, I think that's kind of the sweet spot from which a lot of of incredible organizing and accountability can happen right because then rather than just being like well we didn't do what we said we were going to do in our grant and now we suck so sorry you know um, instead it's like oh this didn't go the way we thought it would Um, it didn't produce the results we expected it produced some other results that are actually really interesting and worth worth the time and effort or it produced some results that are not actually that interesting to us we're not going to keep building this thing. We're not going to keep going down this path. We want to make some transitions or make some different different moves in the next round of this experiment. I'm trying to get as many people as possible to move into that mode of being in organization with each other. Um, cause I think that that's a, that's a sweet spot. You really do need people who are like, I'm willing to make a long-term commitment to growing and changing and learning together as opposed to, I'm going to make a long-term commitment to, you know, building this wall and keeping it for as long as possible. And that distinction feels important. This is such
0: good advice to think about, especially in organizing this
1: yes.
0: nonprofit industrial complex, the ways in which people feel like, and in ways not even feel like, but are, um, in in a sense, forced to contort so that they can get the funding or get the right grant or get the next step. And how you said, I forgot the exact words, but it it keeps people in this wheel. And it's really the opposite of uh, creativity in a lot of ways, because people are forced to stay in this structure and how that really cuts off so much emergence and just presence in how we are growing and learning together and I love the idea of creating this parallel system outside of that where you're wanting to welcome more and more people into supporting each other and not in this other paradigm that actually keeps a lot of people separate and competitive and it's it's such an interesting topic for me right now especially building up this organization kind of being a fledgling in this world yeah stepping back and seeing how similar it is to corporate capitalism in the for-profit world and how similar even in philanthropy we can see these really destructive ways of organizing it's 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 just kind of frustrating and sad and it makes me think about other topic you speak about in emergent strategy, which is non stop reaction. You also spoke about responding to change. And I feel like, whether it's within organizing or just in general, there's this way of living that is in this non stop reaction. And it yeah. tends yeah. to keep us responding to change with fear or uh, resistance or blockage, like you were talking about this wall. I'd really like if you could help expand on this idea of nonstop reaction and how we can grow through that, especially when there's just so much systemic injustice and violence and division.
1: I'm part of this group. I think you mentioned in the bio, but generative somatics and also Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity. And there's this practice there that's just centering. And recently I was listening to a podcast, another podcast podcast with Maya Angelou, and she talked about you have to have a place inside yourself that is inviolate, that no one can reach. The centering process for me helps me get there. It says like within your body, there's a center. There's a space that helps you to understand, to actually feel how you're doing, where you are, what's happening in your body, what's happening in real time, how you feel about it, what might be impacting those feelings. And for me, that has been the core practice of this past few years that have helped me to move out of being reactionary and to move out of being frozen in terror and helped me to continue to be like, I, there's something to keep moving forward for. There's something to keep being excited and interested in. There's something to keep growing towards. And that when we learn to center together, when movements learn to center together, then something else becomes possible that we are not just responding and reacting which i see a lot of happening now it's like oh how do we how do we pay attention to what's happening in the world but keep our eyes on a larger prize on a longer term vision
0: I often say that For the Wild is a love song and I'm being wholly honest when I say that I don't think that there's another way to be in this work if love is not the guiding force because I think that pain and trauma and injustice are so omnipresent. An emphasis on love can be met with accusations of ignorance of reality or uh, you write in Emergent Strategy how, quote, facts, guilt, and shame are limited motivations for creating change Even though those are the primary forces we use in our organizing work, I suspect that to really transform our society, we will need to make justice the most pleasurable experience we can, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I really resonate with this and was so excited to hear that you're coming out with a new book this year called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Yes. So I now open the floor
1: for you to say anything you would like about Pleasure Activism and your new book. I'm really excited to be working on this book. It's almost done and it's an anthology kind of collection. Um, like it's a, it's like interviews, conversations, and then original essays from people who are doing wildly divergent work that I think connects at the root of pleasure from folks who work in the realm of sex work to folks who do burlesque folks who are um, transforming the the landscape around drug access and legality folks who use humor in their organizing. So just really noticing, like, what are different things that make us feel good? Who's fighting for our right to do that? And then it ties back into Audre Lorde's work, the uses of the erotic as power. What does it mean to feel good? What does it mean to to be awake as an erotic being? And once you have felt being awake as an erotic being, um, you know, Audre talks about that you can no longer settle for suffering. And so this book is really talking about that. It's like, how do we really allow that full, deep awakening to happen so that we can come together and organize ourselves around no longer suffering, but um, being in a, in a clearer place. So that's what I'm working on. I'm excited about it. It comes out in the fall. And I think it's going to be a fun read at the very least. Well, we cannot wait for it here.
0: And thank you so much, Adrian, for sharing this time with us. Just know yeah. that you're work has guided so many of us with love and waging love in this movement
1: so thank you and have a a beautiful day thank you so much ayana and blessings to all you and your magic crew over there okay awesome bye all right bye
0: thank you for listening to for the wild podcast i'm ayana young the musical guests you heard today were June West performing No Words to Say and Ariana Sahara with Raven. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I would like to thank our incredible team, our producers and editors, March Young and Andrew Stores, our research director, Madison Golski and our media director, Molly Bove, and all of the other soulmates who make this work happen. Please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible donation at forthewild.world. If you're a musician, please upload your tunes. It's really lovely to interlace these conversations with your music.